So I think we focus a lot on the predators thinking they can outwit the prey, but we kind of forget that it's an arms race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's been kind of shown far and wide across many different systems that predators and prey evolve together. These wildlife passages are not something that only the predators are getting savvy to. This is Defender Radio. And this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Wildlife corridors are a great idea. They connect habitats and ecosystems, allowing animals of all types to safely get across roads. As over 20,000 animals are killed, 570 motorists injured, and $700,000 spent for cleanup of animal vehicle collisions in BC annually, according to wildlifecollisions.ca, These corridors are also a wise investment. They come in many shapes and sizes, but generally are under or above ground passages that allow for safe passage where humans traveling at high speeds represent a risk. Questions about the efficacy of these corridors are being answered with ongoing research, but one that jumped out at me was the question of how a wildlife corridor impacts predator-prey relationships. There's a logic to the concern. If a predator figures out that their prey are routinely using a narrow, easy-to-ambush tunnel, they may be able to outwit and negatively impact prey populations. Of course, the best way to find an answer is to ask a question. And that's what April Martinik did. Martinik, a PhD candidate at University of Alberta, was the lead author on a study published in the journal Nature, titled Temporal Clustering of Prey in Wildlife Passages Provides No Evidence of a Prey Trap. This study adds to the growing list of benefits of wildlife corridors around the world. To explain why wildlife corridors are great, the lengthy process of reviewing tens of thousands of images from trail cams, and what insights about predators, prey, and their relationships she learned, April Martinig joined Defender Radio. Want to show the world your love for wildlife? Check out AnimalStone.com, a family-owned business that hand-makes animal-inspired jewelry. Available in multiple, ethically sourced metals, the charms, necklaces, bracelets, and cufflinks showcase the personality of each animal. The best part is that through their wildlife communities and ambassador programs, contributions are made to organizations making a real difference in the lives of animals. I really can't say enough about the people behind this company and their mission. To find out more and pick out a gift for a loved one, or yourself because hashtag self-care, visit AnimalStone.com and use promo code DefenderRadio to get 10% off your order. That's AnimalStone.com and promo code DefenderRadio. I thought the the real genuine spot to start is let's talk about um, why we have conversations about wildlife corridors. Uh, looking at the issues facing wildlife specifically related to roads and infrastructure, which is a problem worldwide, as far as I, uh, I'm aware. Yeah, we end up seeing that roads are able to affect both the quality and quantity of the available wildlife habitat, and that's generally through how they manage to fragment what was once a continuous population into smaller populations. So we see that happen quite a bit, and then there's also a lot of which kind of comes into why we need mitigation measures, but we see a lot of vehicle uh, collisions with wildlife, and that can be one of the most significant sources of mortality for anybody who tries to cross the road. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I've certainly yeah. seen statistics looking at, uh, and again, this is not the animal-centric version, but looking at it from an, a human anthro—not uh, anthro—a human eco, uh, eco economic. I, I'm struggling today. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Human no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, economic. Yeah. It's it's technically a Monday for me. Anyway, <laughs> I have yeah. seen many summations of the the economic cost of these as well, purely from the human side. But like we're talking tens of millions of dollars every year in Canada and higher in other places from uh, damage done to infrastructure, uh, to vehicles, to people and liability that's associated with that through collisions with wildlife or collisions caused by wildlife. While at the same time, we also hold in our minds the idea, that, uh, and one of my favorite things that ever come of the internet is the image of a deer crossing the road, uh, and it says the road is crossing the forest. Uh, so when you start trying to sort of hold these things together, you very quickly see that conflict just ripe for happening. Uh, do you know much of the history of where wildlife corridors come from? Not too much. It's our interest generally as a research field started in the mid to late 90s where people started noticing, as you mentioned, those economic costs and also the wildlife costs. And then people more or less realized that they need to change animal behavior since we were generally not responding too well mm -hmm. to changes in our behavior, whether that was, you know, modifications of speed limits or trying to get us aware of important crossings for wildlife. Um, so in the mid to late 90s, that was when we were seeing things like wildlife crossing structures being built, um, especially involving things that help animals go over or under the roads. And we've also seen it very specifically in some places. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with these or if they'll be referenced elsewhere, but I, I was at a road ecology conference um, several years ago now. And there was uh, someone speaking about a study looking at turtle mortality in this one strip of road and recognizing the only way for it to be that high is people intentionally hitting turtles, which is a secondary yeah. issue related to this. But it, I just maybe trying to give it a little context of, again, like this is not a oop accidents happen only situation. Um, but it, it, that's also some of the early stuff I saw was specifically to reptiles and amphibians crossing the road. Yeah, they were one of the most, I'd say, probably biggest concerns considering their populations are not as robust mm -hmm. <laughs> as you can imagine. Something like a micromammal crossing the roads, there's a lot more individuals there. So if you lose a couple, that's not the same as in a species that is facing potentially an extinction in the near future. So yeah, the definitely in the turtles as well was, I've heard the same thing about people who are driving intentionally making an effort to hit the wildlife that is crossing. So. Yeah. And that uh, is an unfortunate part of culture that we will dive into at another time. Um, unless you, <laughs> unless you really want to get into the psychology of people who like hitting animals on the road. Uh, with their no, vehicles. No, no, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I personally don't want to get into that right now either because we are looking at a wonderful system of solutions that everyone is very excited about. Um, though I will try and get into that issue in another episode. Um, mm. So the concerns and criticisms. There, there's a few things people, I think, very quickly point to. And there is a logic behind some of them and a little bit of sensationalism behind 
other uh, concerns. And two of the ones that I'm familiar with are very much what your your study shows or talks about, and that is predator-prey interactions changing because you're forcing wildlife into these smaller areas. Um, and then the other one I've heard is people using them because they're a convenient way to get across the road, uh, which yeah. then scares away all of the animals. Are there other concerns? Uh, and can you speak to those ones specifically at all? Yeah, so we, generally speaking, I suppose I'll start with the people one since mm -hmm. my research is much more focused on the predator yes. interaction side of things. But um, on the human aspect of things, what we end up seeing is people also, and for example, in this area that I did my work in Quebec, we end up seeing that people don't even use them, for example, as an ease of access, but they also use them to say, go fishing or just uh. like sit in <laughs> and very, they start to fill a recreational purpose and that purpose then would exclude in animals who want to use the passages and obviously don't want to have an encounter with a human at the same time. So I think that's quite well founded, um, especially because there is enough early research showing that one of the biggest predictors is excessive human presence mm -hmm. can limit uh, wildlife species using them, especially carnivores. So that continual disturbance can be really tough on a structure. We also know that that's true in general in nature, though, too, which I think is mm -hmm. it may be worth adding into that. Uh, I recall seeing a study, I think it was in the UK. I could very easily be wrong because that is also quite frequent. But um, <laughs> I believe, and I will try and find it if I can, I'll include it in the show notes. If not, I'm sorry, everyone. Um, it showed that the presence of dogs on a path were deterring deer from the entire area. So the very fact that people walk dogs, even when the deer weren't there, kept deer away, um, which is mm -hmm. kind of as dogs play that weird role of sort of kind of predator. But um, yeah. I think it's just it's another example of a lot of these species react to what has been in a location as well as what is in a location. Yes, no, that's very true that it doesn't need to be a constant presence. But just the ability to, say, smell an animal that has been through, and if that animal, for you, could be a possible predator, that could potentially change how you use the passage or your behavior in and around that area. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and let's talk about the predator portion, unless there's other ones uh, that you wanted to bring up as well. No, I think the human presence is probably the most salient one, especially right now, you know, mm. considering everyone's outside enjoying the wildlife, yep. <laughs> um, enjoying parks, it's important to think about, you know, how to stay on trails and stuff like that. So Yes, definitely. Um, okay, and let's talk about the prey, the, the sort of the ultimate response of the study, uh, and frankly, something that's very, very important in terms of Canada uh, and the world moving forward with these structures. Yeah, so that the idea there is something that whenever I talk about my work, I hear it from researchers and I also hear it from just the general public, which is what are the predators doing? Have they kind of clued in to the fact that prey are being, you know, funneled in very specific spots along the landscape? And are they taking advantage of this? Mm -hmm. My work, generally speaking, and, gen and work previously looking at this as well, has not found that result so we haven't had actual detections of a predator in a passage taking down a prey, nor actually a predator waiting outside. 
So we haven't found that. So what we end up seeing, though, is that predators can potentially take advantage of that. And that's been a major fear that people have had because we don't want to be putting these structures in to help prey and predators successfully cross roads to then be hurting one part of the group. And so generally speaking to date, there has been very little evidence supporting the prey trap hypothesis, but that doesn't mean it doesn't you know, take a while to happen or could be documented in certain situations. So what I ended up looking at was in Quebec, I focused on small and medium-sized mammals, which are often overlooked because we, we tend to look at the flashier, think big ungulates such as moose or deer and cougars, mm-hmm. those kind of larger I, um, I, mammals. I, I do feel the need to very quickly point out the kind of mammals that we tend to place monetary value on. Yes. No, exactly. And they they are also animals that can quite can have quite visual impacts if to say they hit your car. Yes. You, you see it on your car and you potentially could die yourself. So there is a big concern with those animals, but then mm-hmm. we do have a lot of problems that can occur if you say hit a porcupine. We don't necessarily think of them as being important, but they can um, cause a lot of damage as well. But yes, so we focused on the smaller community of mammals, and we ended up finding that predators and prey were, well, prey themselves were not being targeted by predators, and predators were not changing their behavior to try to make it so that they could trap prey more easily. And that's, it, it seems like a logical thing, I guess. This this is the problem. So if I put my myself in the shoes of a predator and I say, okay, I eat when I catch these furry things and all these furry things mm-hmm. are going into the same spot. If I wait in that spot, I'll just have all the furry things come to me. There's, there's a certain mm-hmm. logic to that, but that, apparently is not the case. Uh, Is there a clear reason for that, that we aren't considering necessarily when we try and put ourselves in the animal perspective that way? I think we're forgetting the kind of the agency of the prey as well, Mm -hmm. in terms of they are able to modify their behavior, whether it's through scent trails or even visual cues. So for example, a passage that might have, so a wildlife structure that might have really low visibility for say a prey species, generally speaking, would not be used by a prey to begin with because it has cues of this is a potentially dangerous structure. And that I found with some of my earlier work. So what we see is prey species tend to use passages where they have high visibility, which allows them if needed to change their behavior in response to a potential threat as well. Um, so I think we focus a lot on the predators thinking they can outwit the prey, but we kind of forget that it's an arms race. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's been, you know, kind of shown far and wide across many different systems that predators and prey evolve together. And this new structure or this new thing they have to deal with, these wildlife passages are not something that only the predators are getting savvy to. The prey can as well. Uh, it's it's really interesting. And there's a couple of things I kind of want to go over. And again, this is from my lack of sciencey background. Um, one of the things was how you approach this. So I, I presume you started out with kind of a hypothesis or the question you wanted to ask and have answered, which I, I presume was the will predators uh, make use of these corridors in order to uh, get more food from small mammals. Um 
But how do you sort of go from that to capturing a, more than 11,000 mammals using the wildlife underpasses over the course of more than three years? Yeah, so at, kind of as you said, the first thing we did was just ask, do we see any evidence of predators catching prey? Like, do we have any single photographs showing this? Because that would be support towards mm -hmm. this hypothesis. And after an, the 11,000 is just the sequences. So I had to go through over 230,000 photos. <laughs> so a lot of photos. Yeah. Um, and we found no evidence of a single mammal predator targeting and catching a prey species at all. So then we had to kind of refine our hypothesis. It was no longer, do we see this happening? Because the answer was no. And that is consistent with almost every study. We have no photographic evidence of this. So the follow-up was, okay, well, what might indicate that predators are targeting prey, but potentially catching them outside of the passages where we don't have cameras? And that led us to look at whether or not predators were using the passages more after a prey had gone through, and if the time for a predator to run into that passage was shorter than by chance. We had two different questions there. And by looking at even more pictures, you found the answers. <laughs> yes, yeah it, took, yeah, it took a while going through all the photos, but yes, we had to kind of break that down quite a bit to get to it. How do you man, I, I, and I'm, again, as someone who has never had to sit and look at more than, <laughs> I'd say, a hundred pictures at any given time in my life, how do you do that work do you is is it just a process of open make a note close and over and over and over um it involves a lot of screens mm -hmm. <laughs> um so you can imagine i have my laptop with a couple bigger screens around me so i can have within one passage all the cameras open at once that's cool and then i go through each one sequentially as we go through time so if i start in september all cameras have to be set to September and then I work forward through that month. And then every time I see a predator or a prey, you have to take that note, enter it into a new database and kind of pluck along that way. So it's a very, very slow process, but you end up doing a lot of it that way. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and it's one of these things where it's, it sounds tedious, but I got to <laughs> think the end is like once you're, punching in the numbers and starting to review the data, there's got to be an excitement behind it too. Yeah. And I, I'd say honestly, one of the things that kind of makes the analysis or just the collection and going through the photos part of it really engaging, even though there is so many photos of say snow with nothing happening, it's yeah. just it's snowing. <laughs> Which activates um, motion cameras. Exactly. Which is, yep. You, you get a ton of photos of watching the temperatures change and stuff, but um, what ends up for me being something that's really engaging is you see funny or cute things happen, and that really brings you back into, like, these are animals exploring their environment, doing what we might consider silly things, and we just happen to catch it on camera, which is keeps you quite engaged as well. That's funny. Yeah, I think one of the images used by uh, CBC in their coverage, they did a good article on this, looks like a little squirrel or chipmunk uh, running through. Yes, yeah, it's it a red squirrel. squirrel. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, you got to admire some of the, the personalities and stuff too, that you deal with. I, uh, I had a, a trail cam set up trying to find out who had been eating something in the garden. And I got this picture of this, uh, possum just sort of ambling past, turned and looked at the camera, sniffed it and kept ambling on. And that was one of my favorite things from that week that happened. Uh, just that, that little interaction this, this young possum had with one of my trail cams, I found hilarious. Yeah, no, you get stuff like that. And for me, I enjoy the porcupines the most because they spend a lot of time just sitting in front of the camera playing with something like a piece of wood. And you're like, how do you survive in nature? All you do is sit for two hours playing mm-hmm. with a stick. Like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> so stuff like that's very cute where you just have to wonder, you know, is this how they spend all their time or is this a break from, you know, living in the wild? <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the other questions I had was about the actual ecology of these. So we've seen a lot of them over, gra- uh, sorry, above ground. I know Parks Canada has a couple that are above ground, and they've been made to mimic the landscape around them. And I actually recently saw a news article. Um, again, I'll look for it, but I can't remember where it was from, top of my head, um, where a community said, we built this wildlife overpass, but you keep clear-cutting around it. So no, none of the animals are using it. What's the importance of the connectivity in that way of having the ecosystem not just connected by concrete, but truly grow across a corridor? Well, the idea behind that is very few species will be comfortable moving through an open area, but some will, and you will therefore have a passage that is targeting potentially species that are more resilient to say having a verge that's been cleared. So that's the area between the edge of the highway and the forest. Mm -hmm. Yes, a a clear verge, some species and some like that are not adverse to being out in the open, they will gladly walk through that. But a lot of species that could potentially be targeted by say avian predators or even predators that are terrestrial might be less likely to walk through it. So you're essentially adding a structure but not helping the the connectivity between the two sides. Um, and that could mean not necessarily because the verge is important for allowing vehicles and people driving those vehicles to see oncoming animals yep. if they're about to run along the road, but potentially for the areas where there is a passage, you could allow the vegetation to get closer and use guiding fencing, so exclusion fencing, to make sure animals are forced to either go across the road further away where the verge might be clear and then or force them to use the passage itself. Yeah, and as I recall, uh, I think it was my interview with Parks Canada on this. I may have been talking to someone else. They uh, they talked about having the access ramp back over the fence on the, the roadside, which is kind of cool. And it's, sort of, it's just a build-up mound. So a deer, for example, could literally walk back over that fence, but would still have mm-hmm. to, if they happen to somehow end up on the wrong side of it. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just interesting sort of how there's solutions being coming up as the need for these adapt or as we adapt to our need for these moving forward and with new information. Um, and as part of that, do you think the research you've conducted will significantly alter the way these are planned or implemented corridors that is, or do you think this is simply evidence on the pro column of should we build a wildlife corridor here? So 
I think it allows at least evidence towards, yes, we can continue building these, so a bit of business as usual. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing that has come up for me a lot is the question of, should we be modifying these passages to exclude predators? Like, say, for example, put fencing that is that allows smaller animals through but doesn't allow the larger predators access and this would suggest like this work would suggest that in this case it doesn't seem like we have support for any modifications it seems like predators and prey especially the prey are able to adjust their behavior and still use the passages in huge numbers without having a cost in terms of predation Um, so with that the idea would be, yeah, very much business as usual, um, which is a good extra study, I suppose, that researchers or other managers can kind of point to when they're faced with this recurring question, because it definitely doesn't go away. <laughs> it's a, it's always there. Well, I think it is. It is very valuable to know. Like I said, this has been a question that I have heard for years um, mm-hmm. about that. And again, where uh, the area in which I live, Southern Ontario, uh, corridors are becoming more and more something considered in planning less so the big ones that we see in parks canada like the one uh the one again mm-hmm. using the cbc article is a very famous now shot over uh banff that shows yeah. one of the wildlife corridors um but there's a lot of them too being used again talking about amphibians and, and uh, uh reptiles uh, who are frequently at-risk species in this region uh, mm-hmm. how to get them from one side to the other. Uh, the Jefferson salamander, again, I this is muscle memory I'm trying to pull from here, oddly enough. <laughs> but in Burlington, there is a section of main road that gets shut down or used to get shut down every year. Again, this is thinking back 10 years ago um, because this endangered species needed to cross this one area. And now if we consider that kind of stuff as we're building roads and just say, hey, if we're crossing a habit, a potential habitat or ecosystem, could we include some kind of corridor for the species that we've inventoried here? It could be a a significant game changer, not just for the auto insurance and planning industries, but for wildlife and biodiversity right across Canada. Definitely. And I think it's harder sometimes for people to notice those changes, especially the biodiversity and just the species population numbers, because we don't necessarily have everyday contact Mm -hmm. with all the species that are affected by us driving across roads. Um, But I mean, whenever I take a long drive, I notice all the, all the animals that we see on the side of the road that have been hit. And those are things that we can potentially decrease those numbers significantly if we are able to adjust how we allow animals and help them get across the road. I was trying to think of a chicken joke, but I can't. Um, <laughs> That's fair. Now, for people who are interested in this kind of work, so you, you're listed as a, uh, was it ecological behavior? Is that the, the, uh, the specific field of study you're working on? Um, I call it more road ecology. Is road ecology, the- okay overarching one uh, it is an emerging field i believe uh specifically again like largely in the last 20 years 30 years we started having these conversations more and more and are seeing actual planning now people who are mm-hmm. interested in this kind of work which is in my opinion very directly impacting sort of daily planning 
uh, and, and human life, as well as making significant contributions to our understanding of wildlife and protecting wildlife and wild places. How would you suggest people maybe get involved in this, whether academically or just sort of as a subject of interest? Ooh. One of, I was having a conversation with a friend about this as we were driving along a highway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is an interesting topic that you just kind of plucked out. But um, one thing we were talking about was just potentially planting, for example, natural communities near the roads, uh, but making sure animals have safe accessibility. So if you have a yard, you can make your yard more inviting to begin with by planting native species to invite more smaller rodents, which I know we don't necessarily want more mice, but you might invite things like voles and stuff that are just passing through um, into your yard. But then in terms of roads, some things that we don't realize, so if you think of, for example, with turtles, just that natural step we put on the side of a road, that little ledge, turtles can't even cross. So something as simple as putting a piece of wood can help animals actually go up from the road to the, like, to the sidewalk and off the sidewalk because it's something for us, we have no problem walking that because we can take that step, but those inches can be absolutely impossible to, to cross if you're, say, a turtle. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the same with window wells and skunks. Uh, if you ever have a skunk mm -hmm. in a window well, you put in a piece of wood so they can climb out because uh, they're also terrible climbers. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's a fascinating thing. And it's maybe requires a bit of a shift and hopefully uh, in, in younger generations, it won't require as much of a shift, but looking at things from that pivoted sort of position of how is this affecting the other things around me? Um, mm -hmm. Nonetheless, I think it's very interesting and uh, definitely looking forward to more on this kind of uh, information. Have you received significant interest from others over this one? Yeah, it's, I figure people would want to talk about this a little bit, but I was definitely surprised to kind of hear the number of, for example, planners just being so happy to have a study that they can finally look at and be like, okay, I have not maybe an answer for my study area, but I have some evidence of how I can look at this in my area if I want to. So that was quite, quite nice to see that people are interested and also people from the public just being like, hey, this is... This seems so obvious. Why wouldn't predators just figure it out? And then having that conversation of, yeah, but then what about the prey? They can also figure it out too <laughs> and make their own decisions. Links to April's study and coverage of it are available in this week's show notes and at thefurbearers.com. I want to thank April for sharing her time and all her hard work. This fascinating research will go a long way in saving countless lives for generations to come. The contest goes on. If you want to win a gator, a face mask popular among runners for its diversity of wearing styles, all you have to do is share your favorite episode of Defender Radio. Just let the world know why you enjoyed it and send us a screen grab. All American and Canadian entries will be pooled for a random draw for your choice of gator, including bear, cougar, and beaver designs. Share your favorite episode on any social media platform and send us a screen grab and you could win. Details at thefurbears.com and in the show notes. That's it for this week, folks. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Defender Radio.